before I introduce her properly, though, perhaps I could just make a mention of what Sigara is and those of you who are familiar with us, uh, and also um, the club run programs that we have. CDRL uh, is um, an organization which promotes postdoctoral research in the humanities and social sciences in the country of the Holy Land, which, for our purposes, is defined by uh, Jordan, Palestine, Syria, and Lebanon, and Cyprus. Cyprus is there more for archaeological reasons than apart from our archaeological clients. We now do not only archaeology, but the whole range of humanities and social sciences. Um, our job is to promote that research, to encourage young researchers, and to publish the results. Um, and we're very proud of what we do, and we're hoping to uh, do it even better in the future, with your help and support. Um, one of the changes that happened in Valencia is that the uh, rules given to British Academy no longer, who are funder, um, uh, no longer allow us to give travel grants to uh, postgraduate students who can only support postdoctoral students, which has suddenly left us with a gap in what we've traditionally done and we think is very important, which is to encourage young researchers uh, who would like to go research in the And that is why we're making an appeal this evening. We've got Sarah and Helmut here um, for contributions if any of you feel able to do that. Um, and we, we would like to support, we would like to raise 4,000 pounds for every team uh, here. And this will support five uh, visits, five students who visit the region. Um, and this is quite an urgent requirement because we need to be able to reward these travel grants quite soon so students can plan what they're going to do probably in the summer. And uh, in the past two years, we've funded five students to do this. They've all been very appreciative of that. We really see this as an opportunity to develop the next generation of researchers. And I'm sure all of you feel your advice in your career path will just be vitally important to that. So there's been some ways of enabling this over the next year we could. Thank you very much for considering that. Um, and we'll be doing this probably every year, so we better this <laughs> We should be trying to raise these, uh, these small sums. And we will also be, of course, reporting back on the success of those, those visits and students who visited. Could I now turn to Nicola? Um, Nicola, thank you very much for giving this. Nicola Park is leader in the international politics in the Middle East at the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Warwick. Uh, and she's published, she's lectured, I think she's quite known for a lot of these, but I don't need to go on. Um, she's also, we're honored to say, a CDRL Commission member, and we're delighted that we have her here this evening to give what I'm sure will be a very stimulating lecture. So Nicola, without more ado, over to you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for the round of applause, even before I've said anything. <laughs> see if you, see if I get the same at the end. Uh, thank you for thank you to the CBRL for inviting me, um, and thank you to uh, Rachel Telfer. Uh, I don't know 
Rachel's here, and Maggie McNulty. Uh, uh, for organising the and publicising the event. Um, and thank you, everyone, for coming. I know that in this sort of lead-up to Christmas, there's a lot of stuff going on. The weather hasn't been very good, so I really appreciate you being here with me today. Um, is there a bit of reverb on the speaker? Let me turn it down slightly. Yeah, it's sounding okay? Okay. Um, just before I start my lecture, I also wanted to just make a, a comment about the artwork that was used to publicise the talk. Um, for those of you who saw the, the artwork, it's a painting, a um, beautiful painting. It's called Eva. It's by a Jordanian artist called Marwa Najjar. I do recommend, you know, if you look out for other pieces of her work, there's also a beautiful painting of hers hanging in the British Institute in Amman, another beautiful painting of hers. So I thank her for permission to use the painting uh, in the publicity material for today's lecture. Okay, so my lecture today is part of a forthcoming book that I'm currently trying to finish um, that examines women's activism in Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon from the early years of independence until uh, basically the Arab uprisings. So the lecture and the book is based on personal narratives of women activists of different generations, which I collected in Egypt, Jordan, and Lebanon over several months between 2013 and 2014. Alongside this book, there will be a publicly accessible digital archive of all the interviews that I conducted. Um, which should come out simultaneously with the book. So I thank the British Academy and the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Warwick for supporting me in that research. Um, so, to formulate the title of my lecture today as How the West Undermined Women's Rights in the Arab World, um, it's not to promise an expose on Western covert operations but rather to problematise from the start the way that we commonly think about women's rights and women's activism in the Arab world. So the Arab world is often represented in sort of mainstream media, in public discourse, as an area where, where women have few rights and their agency is constrained. So this is why Western governments, organisations and, and Western activists feel that they need to save uh, women in the Arab world. They must intervene to save uh, Muslim women in the Arab world, and by force, military force if necessary, um, as we saw in 2003 with the uh, invasion of Iraq. By contrast, my lecture aims to highlight the ways in which Western governments, in pursuing their geopolitical interests in the Arab world, or in the Middle East region more broadly, have contributed to undermining local movements supporting women's rights whilst empowering those groups with conservative agendas. I seek to highlight the doubly subversive nature or potential of women's activism as challenging dominant gender norms concerning female respectability in the public sphere and simultaneously challenging the gendered hierarchies that underpin uh, the dominant geopolitical order. So, in line with other feminist scholars, I view gender as an integral part of geopolitical processes, such as national identity formation, state building, 
construction of state sovereignty and regime consolidation. I argue that it is because of the doubly subversive potential of women's activism in the Middle East, rather than any inherent conservative views, um, that it has been that women's activism has been an object of containment, delegitimization, and even direct repression. So my lecture this evening focuses only on the period from 1967 until the 1980s um, due to time constraints. This period coincides with the Cold War. So in reaction to the Arab defeat in the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, radical and revolutionary movements emerged across the Arab world with Palestinian nationalism at their heart seeking to overturn Western-dominated influence in the region. This lecture examines women's involvement in these movements and then the implications for women of the subsequent repression of these radical movements by Western allies in the region. First, I'll begin by contextualizing um, post-1967 developments in terms of the earlier period of post-independence state building. So in the 1950s and 60s, pan-Arab nationalism was a rising force across the Arab world, and its main advocate, Egypt's Gamal Abdel Nasser, was the undisputed regional leader. Nasser sought to unite the Arab countries against the forces of neocolonialism, including Zionism, and also to overturn feudalism and um, modernize society and the economy through state-led development. In Jordan, the regime repressed radical nationalist forces in 1957. Nevertheless, it adopted many elements of Nasser's state modernizing project. And even in laissez-faire Lebanon, state-led planning and development were introduced after 1958 under President President Shaheb. In all these cases, some form of state feminism was integral to modernization plans. This included promoting girls' education and encouraging women to enter the growing civil service and public sector. Whilst middle-class women were encouraged to participate in the public sphere in this way, nevertheless, they were expected to respect existing gender hierarchies and norms of female respectability. To be, borrowing the phrase of Afsanet Najmabadi, to be modern yet modest. Gender inequality in the private sphere sphere continued to be enshrined in religiously inspired um, family codes. And during this period, women's activism was mainly restricted to charitable work, although with some exceptions. The massive defeat of the Arab armies in the 1967 Arab-Israeli war brought into question the legitimacy of this pan-Arab project and led to a new era in Arab politics. Much has been written on the military and political dimensions of this defeat, as well as the intellectual soul-searching that followed. However, there has been almost no attention to the gendered implications of the defeat, and this is significant because it not only marginalises the particular experiences of women and indeed men as gendered, gendered subjects and citizens, 
But it's also significant because the 1967 defeat created a new opportunity for women to transgress state feminist gender norms in a way not seen since the days of anti-colonial struggles in the first half of the 20th century. So in Egypt, the profound shock of the 1967 defeat unleashed new oppositional movements, at the centre of which was the student movement. It was initially sparked by outrage at the lenient prison sentences that were handed down to the army generals responsible for Egypt's defeat in the war. However, the demands of the students went much further, including calls for greater political freedoms, as well as the removal of intelligence and police from university campuses. In January 1972, thousands of students participated in demonstrations, leading to a sit-in in Tahrir Square. The students were forcibly dispersed the following day and some were arrested. However, students continued to raise their national and political demands in addition to protesting against the arrest of their colleagues. Lebanon also experienced a huge wave of social and political movements agitating for change in the post 1967 period. All aspects of the Lebanese status quo were being questioned and challenged. Lebanon's elite was blamed for the growing socio-economic problems in pre-Civil War Lebanon, including inflation, unemployment, income inequality and regional development disparities. An alliance of leftist parties were united under the Lebanese national movement under the leadership of Walid Jumblat. They called for democratic and economic reforms, including deconfessionalization of the political system, as well as an end to sectarian personal status laws. The Lebanese national movement created an alliance with the Palestinian Liberation, sorry, Palestine Liberation Organization, which had been granted freedom to launch military operations against Israel in 1969. In Jordan, which had been under martial law since 1957, the huge popularity of the Palestinian fighters forced the Jordanian government to relax its tight grip on political and civil life, creating an opening for all political and civil forces in Jordan. Leftist and radical nationalist parties once again flourished, calling for greater democracy and the liberation of Palestine. Leila Nafa, one of my interviewees, remembers the atmosphere at university at the time, uh, I quote, was very liberal, with a majority of students involved in political activities, including young women. The Palestinian resistance became the backbone of the Jordanian opposition, whose programs and activities became Palestinianized. As several writers have pointed out, within these leftist and nationalist movements, women's rights and liberation were subordinated to national and political goals. Whilst they believed that women should be mobilized to participate in the public sphere as a means of modernizing Arab societies, nevertheless, they ignored gender inequality within the private sphere. Julie Petit's seminal study on the Palestinian resistance movement in Lebanon found there was no coherent policy regarding the question of gender inequality and no attempts to transform gender norms beyond the calls for women's participation in the national struggle. Uh, Jordanian writer and activist, Soher Atal, was one of several young Jordanian women who joined the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine after 1967, and she soon became disillusioned by what she saw as the double standards within the movement. I quote, 
When it came to dealing with women, there were two types. If it was his sister, he would make her stay home. If she was a comrade in the party, then he would say, you're free and you can sleep with me and whatnot. So that made me pull away from them. I believe that you should be progressive in all aspects, applying progressive measures to yourself, first of all. Nevertheless, these movements mobilized young women into public activism. So despite the fact that they didn't have a coherent gender identity, uh, gender agenda rather, and they, didn't, uh, and they applied maybe double standards in practice, in reality, lots of young women became mobilized through these mo movements. For the first time, there emerged mass women's organizing amongst Palestinian refugee women. Uh, Nadia Shamruh, who was born in Dehesha refugee camp in the second half of the 1950s and then displaced to Jordan after 1967, remembers that she was in sixth grade when her teacher asked for volunteers to join the Zahrat, which was a youth wing of Fatah, uh, especially for girls. At first, her parents refused, but Nadia went on a hunger strike until they allowed her to join. The two and a half years that Nadia participated in the Zahrat taught her, in her words, that I am strong and that I am exactly like a boy. Uh, meanwhile, Haifa Jamal, born in Rashidia camp in Lebanon, recalls when the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, or PFLP, arrived to her camp in 1969. They announced a training course for young women from the ages of 12 until 30. Uh, this was a program for physical fitness, raising awareness of the Palestinian cause, and even in how to use weapons. Being only 10 years old at the time, Haifa was initially not allowed to register. However, she asked her teacher, who, she told me, had a good position in the PFLP, to help her and her cousin in order to be able to join the course. I quote, And we were the youngest two girls... And in fact, they didn't train us very much in weapons, only in Kalashnikovs, and that was at the end of the course. But we stayed more than one year to make exercises, to become strong, and through this course, I really became very active, because they also gave us lectures about the history of Palestine, about communism, about the Soviet Union, about Lenin, about Marx, Guevara, and since then, I'm active. End quote. The narratives of Nadia and Haifa suggest that young women felt empowered through their participation in the Palestinian national movement. Moreover, women's participation within these movements actively subverted existing gender norms of female respectability, which at the time viewed political involvement as unfeminine and even sexually perilous because of the risks of gender mixing, not to mention the dangers of being arrested. The post-1967 political turmoil more generally provided opportunities for young women to transgress dominant gender norms. For example, Ada, sorry, Ida Saif Abdaula, um, an Egyptian, one of my Egyptian interviewees, recalls being at university during the height of the Egyptian student movement in the 1970s. I quote, I remember I did things then, which now I'm thinking about it, I would never do them again. You'd just walk into a lecture room and would say, what the hell are you doing sitting in the lecture room? You should join the movement. And then you walk out. And it's so embarrassing to think about, end quote. 
Hala Shukrala, born in Cairo in 1954, but having spent a large part of her youth in Canada, where her father was an ambassador for the Arab League, returned to Egypt in 1971 and was propelled into activism by the arrest of her brothers, who were active in the student movement. Despite her young age, she became one of the leaders of the movement of the families of the arrested. She recalls a meeting with the Speaker of the Parliament, who knew her father very well. I quote, So he started speaking very personally with me. Oh, Hela, I know you since you were a child. So I told him, please, be very professional. And he was very upset about it. Of course, I was very rude. But anyway, that was natural for the time. End quote. Even where, even where women's public involvement appeared to conform with traditional female activities of charity and welfare work, women resignified their work as part of rather than separate from these political struggles. In Jordan, in particular, large numbers of women became involved in public voluntary work to address the humanitarian crisis caused by the influx of Palestinians displaced by Israel's occupation of the West Bank. Miasa Saadi was born in Haifa, forced to flee to Jenin in 1948, and displaced again to Amman as a result of the 1967 war. She volunteered her time to help refugee women and children in the camps, whilst also working at UNRWA and caring for her newborn baby, she told me, because she was motivated by a sense of national obligation. The memories of many of the women that I interviewed suggest a social political movement, or sorry, a social political environment in flux in the period after 1967. Social and political movements emerged to challenge the geopolitical and social status quo. Whilst ideologically these movements had problematic attitudes towards gender equality, Nevertheless, they provided a terrain for young, middle-class women to subvert gendered hierarchies and transgress dominant norms of female respectability. They participated in, in street demonstrations, joined political groups, challenged authority, disobeyed parents, and some were even arrested. In particular, Palestinian refugee women who previously had only been addressed as beneficiaries of humanitarian and relief activities, were actively mobilised as agents in the national movement. Meanwhile, other women resignified traditional female charitable and welfare activities in terms of contributions to radical political struggles. Although women were not involved in directly advocating for women's rights, nevertheless, through their participation in these political and popular movements, they transgressed or resignified dominant gender norms. Moreover, given the significance of these dominant gender norms in terms of building geopolitical order, women's transgressive gender performances were doubly subversive by also challenging and disrupting the geopolitical status quo. And in this sense, I conceptualise women's activism as a form of embodied, um, embodied geopolitics. However, this post-1967 revolutionary wave in the Arab countries was eventually defeated by Western allies in the region. The counter-revolution not only targeted radical political forces, but also women and gender. Jordan, one of the staunchest Western allies in the region, was the first country 
where the regime launched a massive crackdown on the PLO. Throughout 1970 and 1971, the army battled against the PLO, causing significant damage to infrastructure and many civilian casualties. The PLO was forced out of, of Jordan, whilst their allies amongst the Jordanian progressive forces were targeted. So Her Atal recalls, anyone connected to the resistance in any way was summoned by the intelligence apparatus, some people went to jail and some were tortured, and some of them were dear friends and relatives of mine. The regime crackdown had the effect of pushing many women activists away from political parties. They not only face government repression, but also risks to their reputation, as the notion of so-called honour was used as a political moral weapon against women involved in political work. According to Leila Nafa, people left the political parties and, cha and changed to the old traditional ways. And traditionally, women don't mingle with politics and they don't join in public events. The return of the so-called traditional gender norms was encouraged by the regime and operated to mark the break from the revolutionary post-1967 period. Nadia Shamruch recalls that after the departure of the PLO, her family expected her to return to being a normal girl. Nadia was obliged to hide her interest in politics from both the authorities and from her family. However, meanwhile, the Muslim Brotherhood was able to operate freely and even cultivated by the regime as a counterbalance to the secular opposition, helping to further fuel conservative gender attitudes, including a trend towards women's veiling. During this period, Nadia resisted her brother's demand that she should stop wearing jeans and don the jilbab instead. In Egypt, Sadat first attempted to undermine the legacy of Nasser, as well as radical popular movements, by allowing Islamists to operate openly on university campuses, in contrast to the rule of Gamal Abdel Nasser, under whom Islamists had been imprisoned. As Ada Saifadawla recalls, Islamist students targeted leftists and Nasserists, attempting to censor their student war magazines and even using violence against them suggesting that some Islamists were even working with state security. Women's bodies and gender norms were central to this counter-revolution. Ida remembers that around 1975, the Islamists took over the student union and began to advertise Islamic dress at reduced cost. I quote, And it was during that time that I got to know a couple of young women, both of whom were veiled, and we got on well, and so they started saying... Why don't you put on the veil? Yes, yeah, so those final years in university, there were the Islamists on the one hand and the Nasserists on the other hand, and the confrontations were violent. Students got beaten up. Of course, we as women, we did not get beaten up. At least I didn't. But we received a lot of abuse. You know, calling us bitches and whores and that we were after husbands, and that's why we are involved in politics and stuff like that so I was happy to graduate, end quote. So that support for Islamist students and his broader rapprochement with political Islamists was not only a way to counter the influence of Nasserist and leftist political groups, but also to signal a clear break from Nasser's secular modernising regime, central to which was state feminism. Sadat undermined some of the gains for middle-class women through the introduction of infitah, or economic reforms, 
privileging the private sector. The relative decline in public sector wages as a consequence of Infita disproportionately impacted women for whom the public sector was the employer of first choice. For the first time, and in a marked departure from the Nasserist era, there were public debates questioning the desirability of women working and the government offering numerous incentives to women to take a leave of absence without pay to raise their children or to work on a part-time basis. Such attitudes reflected growing social conservatism at the time, encouraged by Islamists. Popular resistance to Infita culminated in the 1977 uprising called the Bread Riots in the Western media, or the Bread Uprising by Egyptians. The protests were triggered by the government's announcement of the removal of subsidies on several basic commodities and reductions in state salaries, which led to a doubling of prices overnight. On the 17th of January 1977, workers walked out of their factories and were later joined by thousands of students, civil servants and ordinary people who marched on downtown Cairo. Protests spread throughout the country. All in all, 160 demonstrators were killed that day and 800 injured by security forces. Thousands of leftists were rounded up and imprisoned, accused of attempting to overthrow the regime. Many were released without charge, but not before having spent up to six months in administrative detention. Magda Adli, who was then a student of medicine at Al-Azhar University, was one of about 20 individuals arrested for her involvement in the uprising and spent more than a year in prison. The wide-scale clampdown on activists after 1977 heralded the end of the leftist student movement as a force within Egyptian politics. Many of the underground Marxist organisations began to break up. Similar to what we've seen in Egypt since the summer of 2013, many activists became disillusioned and withdrew from public activism. Many took time out to read, pursue careers or doctoral studies abroad, reflecting upon and revising their previous political ideological beliefs. Women who attended university in the 1980s remarked to me that there was a near absence of political activism on Egyptian campuses beyond Islamist student groups. In Lebanon, counter-revolutionary efforts were led by the right-wing Falange, or Kataib party, and its allies. Their militias, grouped together under the umbrella of the Lebanese forces, launched a series of attacks against the Palestinian fighters and their allies in the Lebanese national movement, which culminated in the breakout of the civil war in 1975. Sorry. In 1977, the Syrian regime intervened to contain the PLO, which it feared would provoke Israel to intervene in favour of its allies amongst the right-wing Maronite parties. In 1978, Israel invaded southern Lebanon, attacking Palestinian refugee camps. Whilst Syrian intervention weakened the, La the Lebanese national movement, nevertheless it is arguably Israel's invasion of 1982 and the siege of Beirut that really undermined progressive forces in Lebanon. In a bid to eliminate the PLO from Lebanon and support their phalangist allies in Beirut, Israel launched Operation Peace for Galilee in 1982, advancing until Beirut. The siege of Beirut lasted for three months, during which time electricity and water were cut 
and there were limited food and medical supplies. Israel bombed the city, including hospitals and residential buildings, resulting in large numbers of wounded and killed. Leila Zachariah, who remained in Beirut under the siege, recalls, I quote, a lot of suffering, but people's feelings were positive all the time. It's only after, you know, when the agreement came that the PLO should leave, they were never defeated. The national movement and the PLO were never defeated in Beirut, never. It was a big shock for us that they accepted to capitulate. But everybody was proud to be part of that battle. Not just me, or just because I have a commitment, but also ordinary people. End quote. Under Israeli and US protection, on the 23rd of August, Bashir Jemail, who was the leader of the Falangist Party, was elected president, and the PLO was forced to leave Lebanon. On the morning of 15th of September 1982, following the assassination of Bashir, the Israelis entered West Beirut, which had resisted the Israeli siege for three months. Over the following days, the Israeli army facilitated the massacre by Lebanese forces of Palestinians and some Lebanese in the camps of Sabra and Shatila, amounting to at least 800 murdered and hundreds disappeared. After the departure of the PLO and the fall of Beirut, the political and cultural atmosphere of Beirut changed. The Lebanese army and Maronite militias conducted a campaign of terror against Palestinians, randomly arresting, disappearing, and even murdering them. Between 1985 and 1988, the Amal militia viciously attacked Palestinian camps in Beirut and in the south in what was called the War of the Camps. It became risky to be part of or associated with Palestinian political parties, and many women stopped their political work, switching instead to work with humanitarian and relief organisations Leila Al-Ali, who's the current director of Association Najdeh, who was born in 1964 in Shatila camp, remembers that after 1982, people became more conservative and mixed activities with girls and boys together, such as voluntary work and cultural activities, came to an end. However, the ongoing civil war and its humanitarian consequences continue to draw women into public work as nurses and relief workers. After 1982, when the conflict became even more sectarianised, women also played an important role in the civil resistance to the war. A central part of the counter-revolution was the restoration of the gender status quo ante. However, this did not end women's public involvement. Perhaps paradoxically, women's organisations and initiatives began to flourish in the aftermath of the counter-revolution as an alternative venue for women's activism, as well as part of the UN's Decade for Women. In Egypt, the New Woman Study Group, which later became the New Woman Foundation, was started by former members of the student movement in order to understand women's specific subordination. Nawella Sadawi established the Arab Women's Solidarity Association, raising the issue of violence against women. In 1985, a group of women activists and lawyers created a coalition against the repeal of the relatively progressive amendments to the personal status law from 1979. In Jordan, women activists established the Jordanian Women's Union to participate in the 1975 UN Women's Conference. Throughout the 1980s, 
women became involved in studying legal reforms to women's rights, and with an end to martial law in 1989, several women's organisations were established. In Lebanon, after the Civil War, women began to create new organisations addressing women's rights, empowerment and combating violence against women. The re-emergence of women's independent associations in the case of Egypt and Jordan for the first time since the 1950s gave space to women to articulate a new gender discourse that escaped the problematic subordination of women's issues within leftist and nationalist ideologies. However, in a context where popular forces were defeated and political opposition groups... Sorry. In a context where popular forces and political opposition groups were defeated, with the exception of the Islamists, it also led to the isolation of women's rights agendas within domestic and regional politics. This isolation was exacerbated by the increasing NGOization of the women's movement after 1990, which contributed to undermining the potential for women's organisations to mobilise wider constituencies. Moreover, women's rights demands became legitimised by the fact um, that authoritarian regimes began to selectively instrumentalise women's rights and co-opt women's organisations through newly established national women's machineries in order to comply with UN gender mainstreaming recommendations, as well as trying to project a modern image abroad. This is particularly in the context of the so-called war on terror. So regimes started to hold up like positive reforms that they achieved on women's rights and the setting up of sort of national institutions, women's, what are called women, national women's machi machineries, in order to present themselves as sort of enlightened bulwark against the, the war on terror. In Lebanon, sectarian parties have also selectively supported women's rights demands, where it furthers their own sectarian agendas. So this uh, intermingling between this co-optation of women's rights uh, by authoritarian regimes, by um, sectarian parties, and also uh, co-opted in the name of sort of the war on terror and the invasion of Iraq, um, all this sort of contributed to discrediting women's rights as, a, as, a, as an agenda. So it's unsurprising that when popular movements began to re-emerge after 2000, initially sparked by the Second Palestinian Intifada, that women's rights issues were not on the agenda. Women were highly visible in these movements, yet there was no attempt or hardly any attempt to include the woman question within these movements' opposition to US imperialism, Zionism, neoliberalism and authoritarianism. It was only after 2011 that women were able to reinsert the woman question back into popular movements as a result of the liminal moment that was created by the mass protests and Arab upri and uprisings um, from 2011 onwards. Now, despite the failure of the 2011 uprisings to fundament fundamentally transform political systems in the Arab world... Nevertheless, one of the most important legacies of the uprisings is the increased visibility of women, act women activists, 
particularly young women, and their commitment to raising women's rights and women's bodily integrity as a central public and political issue. However, the repression of these popular movements in the last few years, which has been particularly fierce in the case of Egypt, has left women's, women activists and women's rights <coughs> agendas again vulnerable to co-option by ruling re regimes. I mean, it's like history repeating itself again, this, this cycle of co uh, repression and, and isolation and co-option. So this again, has, the danger is again that potentially women's rights become discredited through their association with authoritarianism. And in particular, the Sisi regime in Egypt has been sort of um, a key actor in sort of trying to co-opt women's rights while simultaneously um, unleashing probably the worst political repression that uh, Egyptians have ever experienced. So, in conclusion, I've tried to argue in this lecture that Western governments have undermined women's rights in the Arab world through their support for regimes and other actors that have been responsible for the repression of radical popular movements in which women were active participants. Through their involvement in these movements, women were doubly subversive, transgressing the dominant gender norms that underpinned not only gender hierarchies within society, but also underpinning um, the pro-Western geopolitical status quo. By repressing these movements, regimes not only undermined the possibilities for transformation of the geopolitical order, but also the possibilities for radical transformation of the gender order, which in turn is integral to geopolitical ordering. Whilst women's activism has continued to flourish since the 1980s, and women's rights demands have become a central component of that activism, nevertheless, the delinking of women's activism from radical popular movements has rendered women's rights agendas vulnerable to co-option by authoritarian regimes and imperialist forces. As a new generation of women, as well as men, actually increasingly young men, are also part of these movements, as they refuse to compromise on women's rights, the challenge remains to embed these rights demands in a wider popular movement for socio-political change. Thank you. Uh, well, thank you very much, and thank you a lot also for the time span, you know, really long one as well, uh, which is interesting because you're right, history repeats itself, um, and you, you know, wonderfully also illustrated it, how actually history repeats itself. However, um, I'm wondering if you could um, tell us a little bit more about, I mean, you have argued that... Um, women's involvement, as far as I have understood, yeah. women's involvement in um, specific groups have been undermined by specific regimes and, um, or the emergence of specific religious groups. 
um, which I agree to some extent. But at the same time, if you look at, for example, um, the emergence of specific groups during the oil boom and afterwards, and the emergence of the Muslim Brotherhoods, for example, in the 1980s, and then also if you think about you know, the same development um, after, during the Arab Spring or whatever you want to call this period, mm -hmm. um, during the Arab Spring and the emergence of specific religious groups in terms of Muslim Brotherhood, Salafi groups in Egypt and so on, and what they have come up, come up with, you know, the emergence of new forms of uh, gender empowerment. Yes, it's, it is different than the leftist nationalist groups, but it is also a sort of women's agency and empowerment in a different direction within different frameworks, i.e. religious frameworks. But if you look at, for example, Leila Ahmed's you know, recent book about what's happening, what has been happening in Egypt in, um, um, from 2008 and onwards, you can see that you, know, you do have religious groups like Salafi women were going around in Egypt campaigning and you, know, you, 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 did, you did find a new form of feminism uh, that has emerged within specific religious framework that is different, yes, than the leftist nationalist um, groups that we that, that we used to see and the, that are that have been attacked during this period as well and and as you said, you know, also oppressed. But we do have also a, a, a development of in, in, a, in, in a different direction, yeah. which some would also categorize, if you want to categorize them, as you know, feminist, um, but in a different framework. Shall I answer now? Or do we want to take a few? Let's, let's take a few. Um, thank you, Nicola, for a really amazing lecture. This is the second time I've heard you uh, do this, and it gets better every time I hear it. <clears throat> so, sorry, I've got a really bad cold. Um, so, I wanted to actually, completely unrelated to the last question, I wanted to, to tell you a little story um, about a recent event we had at Burzeit University. And we had a visiting professor from LSE, from the Women's Studies Centre there, and we had a workshop on UN Resolution 1325 about women, peace and security. And we were really trying to look at how um, the women's agenda in Palestine had been looked at through 1325. And the women involved there, and we brought all of the women that were involved in the national committees that had been set up under the UN Resolution. And all the Palestinian women there said that um, the UN committee wasn't interested and their recommendations, which is that the main thing for them was the occupation, um, that they really just wanted them to bash other Arab men. And we've obviously, this is incredibly problematic. It's a bit like, let's get the white people to come and save us from Arab men. And um, we tried to speak to them about how we could kind of counteract that narrative, and we are continuing that. So I'd like to um, invite you to be part of that uh, working team. Thank you. Anybody else? Thank you. 
Um, may I be entitled to two questions? Is that okay? If, uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll start with one and see if that works. Um, I'm, I'm quite, thank you for your talk, which is very illuminating. Um, I was interested, if you could say a little bit more, maybe, about the role of women in national political leadership positions. Um, as I was just musing on this question, and three sprung to mind, but each one was connected to a famous man. There's Jalal Talabani with his wife Hero. She's Kurdish, of course. Mm. And then you mentioned Walid Jumblat and his wife, I think, is quite influential. Um, and finally, um, Abu Jihad, his wife, Umar Jihad, you know, is quite a, a figure. But I'm thinking of people, I guess, Hanan Ashrawi in the Palestinian context. But can you mention maybe people, women have actually taken leadership positions in progressive organizations in their own right? Um, second question, maybe a bit controversial, which is you mentioned... Um, obviously in the progressive forces that they're opposed to colonialism, Zionism, imperialism and so forth. Was there or is there any curiosity on the part of various Arab progressive organizations and women in there with the feminist movement within Israel mm -hmm. and also um, maybe a comparison, maybe an unfair comparison between the state of Israel and rights of women there where I suppose there was a prime minister, Golda Meir. Mm -hmm. There's a heck of a lot to do obviously in Israel but was there some complexity in the analysis of relationship of Arab progressive women with possible counterparts in the enemy nation, as it were. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Very briefly, just a comment, really. I just... Um, you, the beginning of your lecture, which I enjoyed very much, made me think about uh, Leila Khalid mm. and the specific context in which she came out in the 70s and whether that was part of those university movements. I don't know much about it. Um, whether or, you know, how her emergence links with what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Sorry. All right. So, lots of great questions. Oh, one more. Uh, okay, sure. Sure, I'll answer these ones and then get that. I'll take yours. Okay. Um, so, the, the point about the women's involvement in Islamist movements um, is, is an important one, and that is one that I cover also in the book. So, I see, um, I mean, partly women's increasing involvement in Islamist movements. And this is not my argument. This is the argument of um, those scholars who have um, studied Islamist movements more in depth, um, but that actually the Islamist movements and women within Islamist movements have learned from uh, secular feminists. There's been um, a need, because Islamist movements have um, realised the importance of um, attracting women as a constituency in support, um, especially when they've been like standing in parliament for parliamentary elections, um, that's um, forced them to address the issue of women's rights and um, women. Uh, so that the the Islamist agenda for, for there is an Islamist agenda for women's rights. Of course, it rejects the universalism of. Um, sort of UN-based type conventions on women's rights. It foregrounds, you know, the role of women within the family. But I mean, we shouldn't un 
uh, I mean, I, I don't want to sort of detract either, though, away from the agency of women within those groups that have been pushing um, for um, a greater leadership role within those movements. Um, so it's an important trend. Um, so I guess what I, I'm, I don't want to... Um, uh, whilst not detracting away from that, I think there's also the, the issue that uh, a lot of women also don't subscribe to that agenda and find... So we have now this sort of bifurcation of the women's movement, which in and of itself is, is quite... weakens the women's ability to, to mobilise and to, and to push forward their demands. So that... I guess it's part of the story. It's part of the story of how uh, events have unfolded in the post, particularly in the post-Cold War period. So, with the sort of disappearance of uh, leftist and, and other sorts of radical secular movements, Islamists have come to the fore, but not all women want to participate in that sort of um, form of. Um, Islamist movement and, and don't want to and don't support an Islamist vision of women's rights. Um, but you're right. Equally, Islamist movements have also given space to some women to uh, also become active. Um, so whether that, in and of itself, though, strengthens the ability of women as a whole to put forward women's rights when there's. An, there's no agreement on what constitutes women's rights. So it's, it's also part of this sort of problematic way in which geopolitics intervenes in these struggles. And, um, uh, and, and I think ultimately weakens um, sort of women's ability to uh, push forward their rights. That's not to say that gains haven't been made. don't want to detract away from that either. So, yes, I agree with you that it's also an important case to look at. Um, and with regards to um, UN Security Council Resolution 1325, so this is a UN Security Council resolution that was passed in 2000 to promote women's involvement in peace negotiations, to protect, to provide special protections for women in war, particularly um, violence that's perpetrated against women in war, such as sexual violence. Um, and um, the UN sort of uses this resolution now as sort of the, the, the template for how to uh, deal with gender issues in conflict situations. Um, I've actually written a, a critique of, of this resolution. I do think it's problematic. Um, and the problematic nature of the resolution becomes very apparent in the case of um, occupied Palestine, where this resolution does not recognize, cannot recognise that sort of structural inequality. It's only sort of focused on gender inequalities. Um, so, I personally, I I don't think that it is a useful resolution, but it's unfortunately one that's become hegemonic now amongst women's amongst many women's groups internationally. Um, the role of women in political leadership roles. So you would find that um, in leftist political movements, this is where you would get women in sort of like central 
committees of, uh, in, the, in the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, in the, um, the Popular Front for the Liberation of, Liberation of Palestine, also the Jordanian Communist Party, um, Lebanese Communist Party. It's where you're more likely to find women in sort of like the sort of central committee, Politburo, what have you. Um, but yes, of course, the political groups, political parties in the Arab world in general, like in most places, are male-dominated. And it's something that women have been fighting to, you know, to, to be in those leadership positions. Now, what's really interesting, of course, it all becomes a moot point given the, weaken, the weakness of these, if you like, his, more historic... Uh, leftist and, and secular movements, um, because the these these movements are, are so um, irrelevant in general that um, I don't think it's very it's not very important that, that women have leadership roles within them. What's really imp I think what's really interesting is first of all going back to the Islamist groups, there you have um, women who are um, again reaching quite high levels within those, especially, for example, in Jordan and the Islamic Action Front. There are women who are reaching quite high levels. Um, and interestingly, they also um, adopted an internal uh, quota uh, in their internal party elections to ensure that... So they've borrowed, again, they've borrowed this idea of the gender quota from secular feminists or secular women's rights activists uh, in order to be able to ensure um, that women are in um, sort of key decision-making um, bodies within the, the Islamic Action Front. Also, if you see what's happened after since 2011, um, and again, of course now, these these the political parties, for example, in Egypt that were formed after 2011, they're now sort of become ineffective and, and because of the repression. But between 2011 and, and, say, 2013, there were a huge number of new political parties that were formed uh, as a result of the sort of opening up of political space after the Arab uprisings. And um, women were, were joining political parties. They were creating political parties. Um, they were in leadership positions within political parties. Um, I mean, you have uh, Hela Shakrala, one of the women I just quoted from. She became the head of the Dastur party. She was the first uh, woman in um, Egyptian woman to head a political party. Um, but other parties as well. You had women in uh, in, in important decision-making positions and in, in leadership roles. So I think you it shows you that when you have a situation of, of sort of political liminality where everything becomes up for grabs because the old structures have um, been weakened, then women find ways to, um, to be part of uh, the political parties, to put their uh, demands on uh, the political agenda. So, uh, I mean, and then, but unfortunately, as soon as there is political repression... Um, women lose that arena in which they can they can be active, um, and and they become vulnerable to to because, because, 
they become vulnerable to co-option, to the co-option of women's rights. So, um, from all I can say is from my interviews with the, so the, the women that I interviewed, there was no discussion of the Israeli feminist movement or the situation of, of women in Israel, so I can't comment on that. Um, with regards to Leila Khalid, yes, exactly. She was, uh, she was a member of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. So she was part of, um, she, you know, like many refugee, Palestinian refugee women, she became uh, mobilized through one of the Palestinian parties. And um, so she's an example, another example of sort of this story of how, how important... The rise, the rise of radical Palestinian nationalism after 1967 was um, as an opportunity to mobilise um, a, new, a new constituency of, of women who previously had not um, been part of political movements. Uh, thank you for that paper. I really enjoyed it. Um, I had a question about the uh, place of the West in the lives of the women that you spoke to and also maybe in your own analysis, um, not just in political terms, which you foreground in this paper, but also in cultural terms. So I sort of thought about this question when you were talking about, I think it was one of your informants, uh, one of the women that you spoke to talking about um, this liberating experience of wearing jeans, for example. And I was wondering whether there was a sort of tension mm. that your informants experienced between Western culture as a potential form of kind of liberation in some ways, of certain forms of consumption of Western culture being, uh, being linked to liberating experiences while at the same time being involved in anti-Western political, like anti-imperial struggles. Um, so that's a really interesting point. So the, the secular activists, secular women activists that I, I interviewed, especially those who were, who sort of came of age in the 1970s or before, very much believed, I think, in the idea of a modernizing project. Um, and of course, uh, epistemologically, the whole idea of modernity versus tradition, this is, you could trace it to a sort of Western cultural mindset. At the same time, though, of course, there is an indigenous, um, a pro, a sort of a, a di indigenous adoption and adaptation of, of modernity um, that's happened in the Arab world from the you know, end of the 19th century onwards. Um, so I guess, we, I mean, there's that whole question about what's Western culturally, what isn't. Um, and I guess for, for, for these secular um, sort of political movements in the, until about the 1970s or 80s, um, the, it wasn't that culturally um, modernity was necessarily Western, but it was something that was aspired to, and it did problematically set up a sort of 
binary between modernity and, and um, traditional backwardness, which, um, for example, led to you know very say negative attitudes, for example, towards the Muslim Brotherhood, um, perhaps even to the extent of like seeing the Muslim Brotherhood as sort of this enemy of modernity that had to be suppressed at all costs. You know, so it has led to some rather problematic attitudes as well. Um, I, I think in terms of... Um, so definitely there is, a, there is a belief that modernity or modernisation can lead to emancipation. That's a positive thing. Um, but I, I think that's been increasingly um, challenged or certainly challenged by, obviously, the Islamist movements who've emerged since the 1970s. But I think also today, I think the generation of um, young, young people today, they, they no longer have this sort of dogmatic belief in the emancipatory um, potential of modernisation and the state as well, the state's role as the sort of main agent of modernisation, because... They've, experienced, they've only experienced sort of negative uh, effects of the state and the state's sort of the state's um, <coughs> modernisation project. Um, you know, young people today they don't you know, they're either unemployed, underemployed, uh, precariously employed. Um, you know, living in contexts of political repression. Um, so they, yes, they no longer see, they don't, they no longer believe in this sort of modernisation as the key to all in a way that perhaps previous generations did. I think, just to clarify, I, th I think what um, Nadia was trying to sort of um, contrast in her statement about uh, her brother not wanting her to wear jeans anymore is perhaps not so much that jeans were a um, a sort of form of uh, emancipation, but I think rather that I guess she she wanted to show how her brother, how his attitudes had grown more conservative, and um, yeah, let me think about that a bit more. But yeah, thanks. case we're up against time I'll try and turn a long question into a short one um, I was thank you for a fascinating lecture I, I was interested in the expression you used about the increasing NGOization mm. of uh, work for um, women's rights as I understood it sort of since 1990 or so um, <clears throat> if I understood it correctly um, the, the, that development was from the West largely um, causing trouble in repressing um, members of uh, so-called progressive political movements um, in the Cold War era to NGOization, in other words, perhaps more well-meaning people coming in, not so much for political reasons, but to uh, unconsciously at least try and impose Western standards and Western ways on um, the, uh, the, the, the struggle for uh, improving women's rights. So, in other words, not necessarily that much better. Um, the general implication I get is, you know, the West has a fairly, uh, not particularly impressive track record right through on this. I wondered if you had, looking forward, 
a view about, you know, short of simply pulling back and not meddling at all, is there something else more constructive that Western countries who want to help might be able to do? Well, I think that that's a question really to pose to people living in the region. Um, and it, it came up in, so it often came up in my interviews that, for example, um, people, some people were um, upset with the way in which, for example, they see funds, West, Western donor funds being wasted on sort of meaningless projects or ineffective projects. Um, they were upset um, the, about the ways in which Western governments sort of ally with repressive regimes in, in the Middle East. Um, they were um, upset about um, the sort of the failure of um, the, sort of for example in international forums like the UN like the way in which those are dominated by western based NGOs so different people did raise different issues but I can't say like there was like one sort of thing that everybody talked about and said you know, this, this is something that you know, really should be done um, because pe different people are positioned differently in relation to these processes. Some people are trying to uh, um, uh, say appropriate some aspects of NGOization in a, in a way that they think is, could be positive for their societies. Other people have completely rejected anything to do with NGOs and um, are pursuing their activism through other channels. So different, and then also different people also have different opinions about Western foreign policy in the region, especially since 2003. So the sort of um, divisions within the Arab world that we see uh, generally, so sort of the Sunni Shia um, divisions, the, the, the Saudi-Iranian uh, rivalry, I mean, different women have different points of view on these things. They're not united um, as, as, a, as a group. So um, I couldn't, yeah. And that's just to give you a flavor of how difficult it is to answer that question that you've just posed. Don't, not, I don't know if that's helpful at all. Uh, thank you for your talk. Um, somebody mentioned jeans just now. Well, let me first of all say that I would never drink Coca-Cola under any circumstances. Mm -hmm. the, uh, I have to say, uh, I, I'm not entirely convinced by your exegesis, uh, so let me okay. just challenge you with a sure. few points. Um, I mean, you just mentioned, uh, as an afterthought, the rivalry between uh, uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and Saudi Arabia. But, of course, the Lebanese Civil War itself was a proxy war. The uh, Syrian war was a proxy war. And there are others mm -hmm. going on right now. Uh, you mentioned the Falange. Well, the Falange had nothing to do with, with the Western intervention. It, it was formed in the, at the Berlin Olympics in 1936. 
uh, by, by, by some Lebanese. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood itself was heavily influenced by Italian political theory. Um, you could argue that Islamic fundamentalism is itself a modernizing, homogenization project. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other things. I mean, you, you mentioned ML in Lebanon. Well, ML had nothing to do with the West, obviously. Uh, it, it was, if anything, very anti-Western. Um, it was partially backed by Iran, but by others as well. Um, so there are lots of things which I think are not entirely... They don't entirely mm-hmm. cohere with your narrative. The, uh, mm-hmm. I, I would say that the... the, the uh, <sighs> The main, the main factor is the weakness overall of left secular uh, um, oppositional forces throughout the Middle East, with the one exception of Iran, which did achieve a revolution. It may not be welcome to most people, but it was a revolution. Uh, but there again, it was the weakness of the left which allowed the Islamic revolution to, to take place. Uh, when you talked about... Um, the NGOization of uh, rights. Well, I mean, th- there is a precedent for, 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 for the imposition of demands, uh, uh, and that's basket four of the Helsinki Accords, when the, uh, when the uh, strategic arms limitation talks also included conditions about human rights and free speech and opening up the political opposition and so on. So, I mean, it was partially successful, uh, only partially successful. But, but there, is, there is a precedent for, uh, for uh, this kind of conditionality. Uh, can I just say, by the way, when you talked about Falange, I mean, as an afterthought, it occurs to me that one of the people who supported Falange at the very end of the Civil War was none other than, the, than Charles Malik, who, who was actually the author of the United Nations Declaration on Human Rights. So things go around in circles uh, in, in unhelpful ways, I'm afraid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah? Okay, so that, that's the last one. All right, so... Um, yeah, so... To clarify, I'm not saying that the West was behind every single um, movement, every single party in the in the um, in the Lebanese civil war. I was my argument was that the actually Syrian involvement was also quite um, important, um, but that the Israeli invasion that really put the nail on the coffin because that's what forced the PLO out of um, Lebanon and that's what weakened the, 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 move, the leftist movements there. That, so my point is that the, the weakness of the leftist movements is not just something that's inherent to, it's not inherent to leftist movements in the Arab world. It has been the result of repression that they've suffered. So uh, whether that's at the hands of Western allies, and in the in the Lebanese civil war, of course, the Falange predated the, the civil war. But again, they were working in tandem with Western uh, with Western interests in the in the Lebanese civil war. Um, the um, so whether it's at the hands of the West and its allies or at the hands of uh, other regimes in the region. But the important thing is the way in which the West, um, the West has pursued its interests at the expense of uh, people in the region, and, and that's had a negative consequence. That I mean, you could say that the Syrian regime would not have intervened in the Lebanese civil war if it hadn't have been for the 
the, the threat, uh, well, first of all, the, the, the worry that it had about Israel intervening and its, uh, its desire to regain the Golan Heights, which Israel occupied in 1967. Why hasn't Israel, uh, um, you know, still, why is Israel still occupying the Golan Heights? I mean, there's all sorts of ways in which you see how all of these things become tied together. So um, it's not a single... It's not, I'm not saying that there's a single cause, but I think there's an overriding factor that, well, about Western intervention. Yeah. Victor, thank you so much. And You're thank welcome. You thank you, for everybody, for listening. And a tremendous tour uh, de force in answering questions and giving more of your, your knowledge, your expertise, and your view, which is great, greatly valued. Thank you very much indeed. And I hope you'll join me in applauding uh, Victor, but also in join us afterwards for a drink and you can continue to question her very hard. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Thank you.